sitting on the couch and vegging out and watching a TV show or movie, absolutely fine. But if that becomes the, the majority of his experience, of his leisure experience, he's missing out on a lot of opportunities for learning really important skills in early childhood, like self-regulation and figuring out how to regulate your emotions and your behaviors. And kids, when they're engaging in free play, open play, outdoor play, they're learning those skills, how to solve conflicts and how to get unbored if they're bored. And if they're on the tablet the whole time with being led from one experience to the next, they're really not learning about those skills. Hey, Parenting Beyond Discipline listeners, ready to create a home that fosters love, warmth, and style? Look no further than Home Threads, your partner in crafting a nurturing environment. At HomeThreads.com, explore a thoughtfully curated collection of furniture designed for families who believe in positive parenting. From cozy reading nooks to durable playroom essentials, our pieces are crafted to enhance your parenting journey. Home Threads has an incredible selection of furniture, decor, and accessories like throw pillows, blankets to snuggle under for family movie nights or reading time that helps you create the warm, cozy home that is the foundation for happy family memories. I love all the great pieces I've gotten from Home Threads to finish the look in my home. Gorgeous yet durable and cozy accent throw pillows, blankets, and some really cute wall decor. I have an ocean theme throughout my downstairs, so I got a couple of really great wall pieces to finish that look. And some picture frames for the family photos. Visit homethreads.com parenting today and get a code for 15% off your order. That's homethreads.com parenting parenting to get your code for 15% off your order because great parenting deserves a great home. Home Threads. Love where you live. Welcome to the Your Village podcast, Parenting Beyond Discipline. Your Village is the most comprehensive site for evidence-based parenting classes available on demand at yourvillageonline.com. Our 50 plus classes give parents the foundation, steps and tools for creating strong, healthy relationships with their children, resulting in responsible, cooperative, happy and successful children and families. My goal is to help parents support their children in finding and reaching their own unique potential. The podcast is a place to learn about all things parenting and get your questions answered. I'm your village founder and your host, Erin Royer. So today we're having Dr. Katie Davis, an associate professor at the University of Washington and director of the UW Digital Youth Lab. For nearly 20 years, Dr. Davis has been researching and speaking about the impact of digital technologies on young people's learning, development, and well-being. In her latest book, Technology's Child, Digital Media's Role in the Ages and Stages of Growing Up, Katie draws on her career in research and teaching, as well as her experiences as a parent and educator, to bring clarity to what we know about technology's role in child development. So thank you so much for being here, Katie. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. So I always like to start with my favorite, one of my favorite thought leaders is Simon Sinek. And you know he gave a TED Talk a long time ago about start with why. So I always... I like to ask my guests why. What was it about this area of research that drew you in, especially 20 years ago, because you weren't a mom yet, I'm guessing? No, no. Back then, I was an elementary school teacher. And so in the early to mid-2000s, I was a fourth grade teacher. And 
that is the moment when I started realizing that technology was becoming increasingly and exponentially an integral part of young people's lives, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And I was just really fascinated about how this might change the process of growing up, development, learning, how you just navigate your world and understand it. So I decided to go back to graduate school and focus on this for my doctorate. And that was such an interesting time because I started my doctoral studies in 2005, which Facebook was still very new. MySpace, if people remember that, was pretty dominant. Right. (laughs) Um, But the whole concept of social media was still a new one. Um, There was a lot of fear among adults about what this, you know, these new platforms were creating and what sort of experiences young people were having. YouTube, I believe, came out in that same year, 2005. The iPhone wasn't even out yet. So it was a really interesting time to start researching this area. And because technology moves so quickly, it's just always interesting. And it's it's hard to keep up, but it's super interesting to just watch how the technology changes and how youth of all ages so quickly adapt and how they integrate these new technologies into their lives. That's really interesting. I went back to grad school and I knew I wanted to work with children and families and what I also was grabbed by the same topic. And so my research is not nearly as in-depth as yours and it's been many, many years, but my research project, my final research project for my master's degree was also in the effects of technology on children, both their behaviors so interesting, and their physical well-being and their emotional well-being. And I just found it a fascinating topic as well. So no, it really is. We definitely have that in common. <laughs> yeah. So you have some really great stuff in in your book. So I hope we'll get to touch on a lot of great stuff today. But so you talk about children's experiences with technology and how it affects their digital social relationships, how this has become an inescapable aspect of growing up. And I, I think this part of the topic is so interesting because of what we just went through with the pandemic and how so many kids were kind of forced to do all their social interactions online. And then how we're trying to kind of back down from that, but it's just become so integrated that I just think it's a really important thing to talk about. Yeah, I know. It's so interesting. I started writing this book just before the pandemic. And then of course, at that time, my son was quite young. He was only three and he was at home for the entire pandemic. So I had to pause for a little bit. And then I wrote most of it sort of in the middle of it and and towards the end of the pandemic. And, you know, it was really interesting watching how the societal conversation about technology started to shift and very quickly because we realized very early on in the pandemic that it's not a question of should kids have technology in their lives or shouldn't they, which was a dominant question that I was getting before the pandemic. Is technology good or bad? Should I give my kid a phone or not? should they have any screen time or not, or how much. But we realized very quickly that technology, if we're going to continue with life at all (laughs) during the pandemic, we really needed to rely on technology for so many things. And so the, the conversation started to shift from is technology good or bad to when is technology good? When is it bad? And how can it be used in a positive, developmentally supportive way And what are the ways that are not so good? And those are the exact questions that I've been pursuing in my research for many years now. And it's hard sometimes, you know, because 
it's not, you know, people often will want a, a pat answer. Is this good? Is this bad? And the research is far too complex and complicated to give that sort of answer. But I do recognize having become a parent during my career that we, as parents, we do need some sort of concrete answer. We need something concrete to help guide us, even if the research is very complex and it's still evolving. And so I was really motivated to write this book so that I could take all that complexity and distill it down into something concrete that you can actually hang your hat on and use in your everyday parenting or teaching or whatever interactions you have with youth. Yes, very true. So what can you tell us about what you've learned about the social interactions like through online or through digital communication that was surprising? Well, so in the book, I look at the full arc of child development. And when you're talking about social interactions in an online setting, typically you're talking about older kids, sort of late childhood, and especially adolescence. And so of course, you know, the big, the big topic and what's often front and center in the media is social media. But of course, that's not the only ways that youth interact online. There's a lot of social gaming that takes place. There's even, you know, instead of this, these public social media platforms, and even sometimes on them, like Instagram, teens will often use them more in a private sort of messaging way. Group chats on WhatsApp or direct messaging are also common. And so, you know, I think one thing that I have found and one shift that I've been really interested in watching over the years is how teens have made these spaces their own. And so I think a great example of that is with Instagram. So some of your listeners may be familiar with the term Finsta, which is the, the smash together version of fake Instagram. It's smash together to create Finsta. And so teens, you know, we're starting to react to the very public polished nature of Instagram that puts a lot of pressure on you to present a packaged self and, you know, the best version of you that you can possibly be. And it's a lot of pressure. I think we, we would all agree with that teens as well. And so the concept of a Finsta, is, it's not an actual different account, but teens will often make a separate account that is only open to a certain group of their close friends. And so in that, they're creating a space where they can be a little bit more private in this very public platform. And within that, and I guess I bit ironically, within the fake Instagram, the Finsta, they find a space where they can actually be a little bit goofier, a little less polished, a little bit more real and authentic. And so I think that's just one of many examples in my research where it's so interesting to see how teens are taking these platforms and these modes of communication, reacting to what they're able to do and also carving out spaces for themselves to really, you know, be themselves and express themselves in the way they want to. Um, that's really interesting. And I, I do want to get to some of the stuff for younger kids too, because a lot of my audience has younger kids. And I heard you talk about some great stuff about design and the ways to kind of guide with their interactions with their apps. I definitely want to get to that. But just because we're on the teens, and I have teens, I have a 14, a 12 and a 12 year old. So my kids were a little older when they went in, when we went into the pandemic, I guess they were probably nine, nine and 10, somewhere around there. 
So they were already doing a little bit of stuff online. And sorry, I had a lot of friendships built and, you know, did all that schooling online. But now what I've noticed is there's some new social media apps coming up that one of my kids is on is called Be Real. Mm. I assume you've heard of this one. So it's kind of, it seems like it's kind of an answer to the fakeness of Instagram. It's so interesting. Yes. I'm working with a PhD student at the University of Washington and and another professor on a study looking at how teens use Be Real and express themselves. And this PhD student did a bunch of interviews with teens about their experiences, really looking at, well, what's different about Be Real and especially how it's designed. And it's so interesting because you all of the pressures that you typically associate with social media, you know, seeing how many friends you have and like counts and all of this is not really prioritized on Be Real. You can only post once a day. You have a, and you're told when to post. So, and everyone sort of gets the same notification at the same moment in the day. And you never know when it's going to come. You have two minutes to post. So it sort of prioritizes and rewards a spontaneous presentation. And also there are no filters, which is interesting. It's also hard to kind of reach out and, and gather a lot of followers. And so teens typically have lower friend counts on Be Real than they do on Instagram or other platforms. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The whole purpose is to just present an unvarnished, real, authentic version of yourself. And I think it's a really great example of how much the actual design of a platform can shape teens' experiences and how they respond and how they interact with other people on a platform. And and that I think is a good sign that there and Be Real is certainly not perfect. And we have found a lot of ways in which there are still stressors associated with interacting on this platform. But it does show that you can design a social media experience that is less stressful, perhaps, than your typical Instagram experience. And so that's what my research group is really trying to explore. You know, instead of banning social media outright, which we don't really think is realistic, how can we make it a better experience for teens, recognizing that it's really an integral way of communicating and also often exploring your world, learning, connecting with others who are not necessarily close to you geographically, but it can often come with a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. And for some teens, it's associated with mental health challenges. And so we're really interested in exploring how can we design a better experience that foregrounds all the good stuff and minimizes all of that stress part. I love that. I could go so deep into this, but since you're talking about like the design, because I know you talk a lot about the design and how companies and people who are creating apps can really design for child development from the more positive aspects of child development. So I love that we're talking about this with Be Real. To me, there is nothing more important than my family's health and well-being. We all know the quality of the air in our home is important. But did you know indoor air quality can be up to 100 times dirtier than outdoor air? I've got to tell you about Puro Air. In 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, dander, and gases from the room. 
Puro Air uses a stronger filter called a HEPA-14 that filters pollutants at a microscopic level and is backed by scientists from Harvard and MIT. In laboratory studies, users saw noticeably cleaner air in just 30 minutes. When it comes to babies and children, there's nothing worse than dealing with a cranky baby or child who can't sleep because of congestion. Air purifiers can help reduce congestion and improve immune system function to fight those winter colds and flus. I use my Puro Air purifiers to clean the air in my home, especially in our bedrooms while we sleep. It has a quiet, relaxing hum and cleans the air from pet dander, allergens, viruses, dust, mold, odors, and contaminants. It has four levels, low, medium, high, and sleep and four different timer options so you can customize it to your home and your needs. Check out Puro Air at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. Puro Air is the only air filter that uses a HEPA-14 filter. That's getpuroair.com. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. My favorite thing about Armoire is all the different style and occasion options from casual to athleisure to night out, work formal, work casual, a total of eight different occasions, three weather options, and 11 categories, including accessories, outerwear, and blazers, just to name a few. With Armoire, you can always have something new to wear without the hassle and closet clutter. You know the feeling. You open your closet, it's full, but you have quite literally nothing to wear. You're bored with everything in there. Enter Armoire. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothes for every occasion. Whether you're planning your outfit for date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off the first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash parenting. That's armoire.style. A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash parenting to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. I'd love to shift that down to some of the younger ages, you know, because parents are really, as you've experienced as well in, in your household and in all your research, there's a lot of, you know, younger kids who we have on tablets and doing these apps. And so just share with us about what parents might want to look for. What are some good design aspects for apps like toddlerhood through like kind of middle childhood? Yeah. So I think what parents can first foreground in their mind is how is their child's attention being used? Are they in control of their attention or is their attention being co-opted by whatever platform they're using? And so I talk about specific designs that are better and worse for, you know, maintaining control and agency over your digital experience. And I'm sure many listeners have heard about the concept of dark patterns in design and what these are, are really design features that are intended to keep a person on a platform for as long as possible. So one that we're probably all familiar with is the autoplay feature on Netflix or YouTube or any sort of streaming platform like that. 
that just, you know, instead of you actually having to hit the button to advance to the next episode or video clip, it just does that for you. And that's a great example of just something that's just very subtly keeping you on the platform and kind of taking over your attention in some way. And when we we think about, well, what might dark patterns look like when we look at younger children and how they're interacting? Autoplay is definitely one of them. Although I, I give companies credit for disabling the autoplay for younger kids. So on Netflix with the kids, you don't have that autoplay, which is great. But, you know, things like having a navigation where it's difficult to find your way home and, and therefore find your way out of the platform. Some games have virtual characters that cry when you're about to leave. Oh my God. Yeah. One of my colleagues has documented different dark patterns in children's design. And one of them is virtual characters who cry when you try and leave the platform. You know, video games are very well known for having these features like points and rewards, any sort of virtual trophies that you know, just keep you wanting to play and play and play. Right. And in the book, what I'm, I'm not saying eliminate this completely. My son, Oliver, he's six right now and he loves, you know, little video games. I, I actually am waiting to introduce him to things like Mario Brothers and those more extended games, but he'll play, you know, little games on his tablet, but it's very hard to get him off of the tablet when he's playing these games because he wants to accumulate more points. He wants to get from the beginning to the end of the racetrack or whatever it is. And when he's playing these games, his attention is really not fully in his control. And so I, as a parent, have to be really vigilant about how long I let him do that because I don't want to get into a pattern where his attention is mostly being co-opted by something outside of himself. A little bit of that is absolutely fine. Sitting on the couch and vegging out and watching a TV show or movie, absolutely fine. But if that becomes the, the majority of his experience, of his leisure experience, he's missing out on a lot of opportunities for learning really important skills in early childhood, like self-regulation and figuring out how to regulate your emotions and your behaviors. And kids, when they're engaging in free play, open play, outdoor play, they're learning those skills, how to solve conflicts and how to get unbored if they're bored. And if they're on the tablet the whole time with being led from one experience to the next, they're really not learning those skills. So true. My younger son likes to play this game. It's called, I, want, I think it's called War, War Thunder, I want to say. He's really into like, automotive so cars and planes and you know anything with engines and it's this game that allows you to like build your own planes and kind of design your own planes and you can upgrade your plane i think i don't know i think i'm understanding it correctly but then they get to go to war and they have tanks and planes and they get to do dog fights in the planes and he loves this but you can't get off of it like when you want to get off so anytime i'm like it's time for dinner he's like well i have to finish playing because if you don't you lose all your points or you lose whatever. And so I've realized I just have to start stopping him, you know, like 10, 15, cause these can be long, mm -hmm. you know, um, games, they go 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes. So 
you know, I have to get them off before like, a good 10 to 20 minutes before I serve dinner so that he's not in the middle of a game when I'm like, no, you're not sitting there and playing while we're eating dinner. Absolutely. I know it's really hard. And what one thing that's tricky about some of these games is that they have some learning opportunities. You know, if you're playing Minecraft, for instance, in creative mode, you can actually learn a lot of things or building games and wrote with Roblox. So there's there's some good stuff here, but it's often extremely hard to stop playing with them. And so it can put a lot of tension on families where parents are trying to get their kids to stop playing. And it's a lot of effort on the on the part of parents to figure this balance out. And it's not easy. It's not something I have found as a parent. It's not something that I figure out with Oliver and then we're good. It's almost every day we have to renegotiate the boundaries here, especially if he gets sick or if I get sick and we'll have a day where we're just watching TV all day. And then when we're better, we have to reset and go back to our previous patterns, which he doesn't always like. (laughs) Well, and then there's always new games and new things that they're trying too. Yes, absolutely. Then you have to... As soon as you get something sort of set, then something changes and you have to start all over. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and in terms of, you know, how to find this balance, one thing that I offer in the book and I weave throughout the book at each stage of development is this, what I call a two-step decision tool. And it's really two questions to keep front and center when you're thinking about your child's digital media use and trying to figure out, is this okay? Has he been watching for too long? Should he be playing this game or should he go outside? And so these two questions are, the first one is, is this experience self-directed? And again, this comes back to how is your child's attention being used? Are they in the driver's seat of their digital media experience or are they just being led from one, one moment to the next and they really don't have any agency? And this applies for very young kids. It applies for teens who are on social media. Just thinking about who's in the driver's seat. And if you find, and it's, you know, you can just by observing and sometimes by talking, especially with older kids and teens, talking with them, you can kind of get a pretty good sense of whether they feel that they're in the driver's seat, if their attention is being co-opted or not. And the second piece, then the second question to ask yourself is, is it community supported? And by community supported, I mean, what are the supports surrounding the digital experience that children have access to, such as parents who are monitoring how long they're spending or what kind of content they're engaging with, or even, you know, parents on hand to talk with teens about challenging situations that have come up in a group chat or on on social media, all of that sort of community support. And it's not just coming from the parents, although parents are extremely important but it can come from teachers, it can come from friends. All of that supportive context around a digital experience is really important. So those two questions, is it self-directed, is it community supported, can actually go a long way to help you make good decisions for your particular child about their digital media experiences. And it also allows room and flexibility to acknowledge that Kids are all very different. Kids of the same age and sometimes even in the exact same family are still very different. And what is good for one might not be good for the other. What is self-directed for one might not be for the other. And this framework really allows for that flexibility and 
the individual differences, the contextual differences, you know, people have different neighborhoods that they're living in, maybe going outside to play isn't an option for all kids. Maybe watching a show or engaging with a game on a tablet is the better option in some cases. So all of these questions are really important to keep in mind, but those two central questions of self-directed community supported I think, can be used throughout all of the ages and stages of child development. Yeah, that's very good information. My daughter, she just in kind of an example following on to that for an older kid, her iPad just died. She'd had it a long time. And so she was using mine for a little while. Well, mine is all hooked into all my other stuff. So it's, you know, my phone and my, my laptop and it's all connected. So she messages with her friends and every time they would message, it would pop up on my computer. <laughs> and you know everything was very benign they're very sweet girls like nothing came up but some of the girls were like just being silly and kind of spamming the group like looking for one of the girls and they kept like asking like Naya where are you Naya where are you and they kept doing it over and over and one of the girls finally was just like that's enough (laughs) so it was like she was letting like kind of helping guide the group to like like this is like too much and how to kind of their behavior, which I just thought was great. Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing I love. That's a great example of teens just kind of creating their own norms and standards and and deciding together what's too much, what's too stressful. And I, I see a lot of that. And I think it's really great to see. Yeah, that, you know, that kids, they can use technology to still learn social interactions, learn from each other, share their likes, their dislikes, or, you know, or when someone's out of line or so I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. No, no, it's very true. They're learning a lot of very complex social dynamics, especially when you overlay on top of the online interactions, then their interactions at school and in person. And it can be, you know, a lot. And I think for parents sometimes they see their kids doing this and because they didn't grow up with similar technologies they think they don't really have a role in being involved in those dynamics but actually parents really do have a role although we may not have grown up with these particular technologies we do have a lot of experience with social dynamics and complex social dynamics and we can certainly bring all of that experience to bear when we're talking with our children about what's going on, because it can be very fraught sometimes. And it's not just because kids know and kind of instinctively how to operate these devices, tablets and phones and and all of the platforms that are on them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have the maturity or the wisdom to interact really well. And, And often they're very aware of that and they don't really know what they're supposed to do with a very awkward or tense social situation. And so parents do really have a big role to play in those cases. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for all this information. I think this is really great. Give parents some guidance. If you could tell everyone again, the name of your book and where to find it, and then anywhere else where you like to be found, speaking of social media, I don't (laughs) don't know if you're on there, but (laughs) sure. Yeah, not so much. I mean, I, I am on social media, but I do limit it recognizing that I adults can get sucked in just as much as teens, and I'm not different in that way. But I think 
if you're interested in the book, you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Random House or hopefully in your local bookstore. I also have uh, an email newsletter that you can sign up for on my website, which is katiedavisresearch.com. And in the newsletter, I share blog posts basically that are on my website that explore some of the ideas in the book and try and tie them to things that are going on in the news. So for instance, recently, the U.S. Surgeon General published a public advisory about social media and teens. And so those types of things I reflect on, react to in light of the ideas of the book. So yeah, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Katie BDA. Right. And that's Katie K-A-T-I-E. K-A-T-I-E. Sorry, it'll be in the show description too, so they can find that. But I'll, I'll put the website. But oh, and I wanted to reiterate the name of the book so people know where to find it. Technology's Child, Digital Media's Role in the Ages and Stages of Growing Up. So you can find that on Amazon. And I love that you reflect on the latest research. I think that's so important, staying up to date, because uh, that's just, you know, it's it's a lot of work to do that. So to be able to have that resource for parents to have a go-to for you staying up on it and then giving your expert advice on, you know, how to disseminate it, what it means. Yeah, absolutely. Because right now, especially the a big conversation in addition to social media is AI. And so I have a bunch of posts about, AI, because that's not something that was really on my mind a lot, although a little bit. But when I was writing it, it was before ChatGPT and the explosion of conversations around what this means for, especially education, but just more broadly for kids growing up. Yeah, it's definitely a world that's changing very, very rapidly and definitely, you know, something us parents, lay parents can't keep up with. <laughs> it's, it's a lot, it certainly is. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your knowledge with us today. Yes, thank you so much. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.